I'll, I'll get my Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Anybody want to ask anything before class? Questions? Okay. <laughs> okay.
Remind me your name again. Rachel. Rachel. Okay. I was sick last week, so okay. I watched it on the stream. Okay. Did that work out all right? Yeah. Okay. Shall we start in? Now, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So our theme for today is the, the ten, continuing with the Ten Commandments, um, 4 through, um, through 10, but we're going to skip um, the 6th and 9th uh, Commandments, and we'll do the next time. So that's sexual ethics, basically, we'll do next week. And so we'll have controversial topics both today and next week. So today we'll do things like um, <clears throat> thou shalt not kill, and, uh, and next time thou shalt not commit adultery. All right? Questions on anything from last time? I know I ran through second and third commandments too fast, but <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's so in great question in scripture. So God transcends human beings, obviously, right? And so therefore, God transcends our emotional reactions. But scripture um, has to make use of analogies and metaphors to communicate God's inner life. Because um, even though he transcends our emotion, it's not as if he doesn't have what correspond to our emotions, above all, love, but also sorrow. Um, and so there's the, uh, another case of repenting. Right? And there are two. So it's, one is before the flood. Right? He repented having made man. Right? And, and made the, so we shouldn't, what we can't think is that God changed his mind. Oh, I made a mistake. Because, and that's because he transcends time. He doesn't actually have a before or after. His now embraces all eternity. And it's the same here. It's not as if he, oh, I was going to destroy. So he told, so in today's first reading, we get the prophet Jonah, right, who's sent um, to Nineveh. So th there's a whole story behind that. That would be like um, the Jewish people being sent to Adolf Hitler in 1944 you know, or something. And Nineveh was the capital of um, the, the empire that had taken the 10 northern tribes captive and dispersed them to their reaches. I mean, um, anyway, so Jonah didn't want to do it, but that's not the point. The point is, God didn't want to destroy Nineveh either. And he gave, so um, very often in scripture, um, there are conditional um, statements of God. In other words, if you don't repent, um, this will happen. But Nineveh did repent. And so the, um, the scripture shows us a really beautiful thing, that God gives us warnings not um, to, I don't know, so that he can 
carry them out, but precisely so that he doesn't carry them out. Yeah. I don't think so, because it's, it's typical of the Jewish scriptures to speak of God in a very human kind of way. And obviously, that, it, he's not human on our level, but it's, we would get a very wrong impression of God if we were to think of him like this, I don't know, gigantic, um, uh, as if he didn't care if we don't respond to his love. He's the bridegroom, and we're the bride. And he uh, cares infinitely Right, whether we respond or not. And that's what's being shown there. Yeah, and does everything that he can to bring us back. Right, and that continues in our time. So we don't have um, prophets in the same sense as Jonah with public revelation. But we have um, apparitions like um, at Fatima, which in 1917 occurred in which Mary spoke to these three shepherd children of Portugal, speaking to them about things that would happen. And among the things that um, Mary spoke to them about was the communist revolution, which took place a few months later, and, um, and Russia becoming right, the kind of a, the center of a, an atheist. Um, and then the second thing was about the Second World War. Right? And again, it was set in a conditional way. If mankind doesn't repent, these things will happen. They happened. <laughs> but sometimes they don't happen because people repent, and that's Nineveh. Great question. OK, let's get on to so, um, Commandments four through 10. And so I'm gonna start with the fourth command, and maybe it's one we don't think about so much. It's interesting, so the first three commandments are about God. We could say the first tablet, to, to love God above all things, to um, honor him, that would be the second, and to serve him, that is give him worship, the third commandment, right? And then four through 10 are about our relations with our neighbor. And it's interesting that the fourth commandment is a kind of bridge, because Commandments 5 through 10 are about all our neighbors. Right? Not to kill anyone. But command, the fourth commandment is about special people. Um, and that is um, about our family and our parents in particular. But it also works the other way around. It also is for parents about their children. Um, so the fourth commandment commands us to honor and respect our parents and those whom God has vested with his authority. In other words, it's a commandment about those who take God's place, first and foremost, our parents, but also about, and we can extend it, to other authorities in our lives. And um, the, that attitude of reverence we should have for the authority of my dad or my mom, I should also have in an analogous way for civil leaders and church leaders. Right? And so part of the fourth commandment is honoring one's president, one's bishop and one's pope. And that is something that can be hard if I don't like them or if I don't like their policies. But it's the same with our mother and father, right? I don't always have to think that what they choose is best. That's not what the Fourth Amendment requires. That would make you crazy. But it's to um, give them a special honor because they're in God's place for us. Right? So it's really, it's a beautiful commandment. And it's about filial reverence, all right? And it's also about the family. And so the catechism speaks a little bit here about the nature of the family and God's plan. And, and we'll talk more about this next week, right? That'll be our, our theme. So a man and woman united in marriage form a family with their children, and God um, instituted it 
when he made man. We'll come back to this next week. But in, in Genesis chapter 2, right, we see that, or even in Genesis chapter 1, God made man in his image and likeness, male and female, he created them. Right? And so we can see that God from the beginning made man and woman to form um, a family and to enter into marriage. And it's, it's clear in, in Genesis 2. And it's, there's a, a twofold good in marriage. It's the good of the spouses themselves to have an intimate friendship and union that lasts all of life. And obviously, it's about the overflowing of that good to um, children and thus propagating um, the world. And every um, Christian family is meant to be a little church. Right? It's the, the, the smallest level of the church. And it's got this beautiful name, the domestic church. And we spoke a little about that last week, that um, when we were speaking about um, the first commandment um, that commands us to love him and therefore to pray, but then with regard to the fourth commandment, it would be to fulfill my family duties. I have to lead the family in, um, in prayer and having a relationship with God. So that would be one of the, maybe the most important um, responsibility of parents. And that, by the way, and that falls obviously on both parents and to be religious leaders for their children and their domestic family, but it actually, it's even more important for the dad. Now that might sound crazy because it's usually the other way around in society, but um, um, in, the, um, in the family, um, all right, here I'm gonna say a controversial thing. Um, so Saint, in, in scripture, St. Paul speaks about the, a headship of the father. Right, and that obviously gets um, a lot of um, pushback from feminists um, in society today. But the way to understand that is it's not simply that the father has this role of head, but the mother likewise has a unique um, role, and that is heart, um, to be the heart of the family. And both um, parents have to do their job. And, and the health of the family comes when you have heart and head united. And so the headship of the father has to be a leadership. And therefore, I can't simply delegate, I don't know, the religious sphere to somebody else and, um, and be the father that God wants me to be. Right? And likewise, a mom couldn't um, relegate to somebody else being the heart of the family. Questions on that? And that... Um, makes a family, and that is great also for the union of the spouses. Right? So the, the marriage union is the strongest of unions because it's complementary. Right? So a union in which you've got two who are the same, a union like that is less solid because um, if somebody else is exactly like me and has everything that I have, then I'm... Not so necessary. But if each spouse brings something that the other doesn't have, so paternity and maternity, that makes a union that in which each one is irreplaceable, and um, it makes for a much greater union. Obviously, there are tons of ways that this can be lived out, all different cultures. We're talking about a Catholic church that lives in every culture. Right? It's a principle that can be put into practice in all kinds of ways in different cultures, times, and places. 
society, so the family is the, you could say, the building block of society. And therefore, society has a duty to support the family. Now, the church doesn't say exactly how states should carry out that duty, right? Different states will do it differently in different times and places. But that would be something that all those in public office would have to have a, something, um, a very important priority. Um, what to do to support the mission of the family in a given um, society. Um, and so the catechism says, public authority must respect, protect, foster the true nature of marriage and the family, public morality, the rights of parents, domestic prosperity, but while respecting the principle of subsidiarity. Do you remember we talked about that last week, I think it was, or the week before? Fancy word. And it means it's how to give aid. And the principle is you want to give aid in such a way that you don't take away the proper initiative and authority of those that you're aiding. So yes, it's good that the government aid families. But it would be very bad if there was a condition put down. We will aid you if you have, I don't know, only two children or something like that, like in China. Right? That would be actually totalitarianism because it would be the federal government telling families about something that's their business, the family's family size and not the government's. Right? So the principle of subsidiary. So yes, it's good that there be programs for poor families, um, say single mothers, whatever it may be, in which there needs to be aid given, but it should be given respecting their own initiative and not taking it away. Okay. All right, so what are the duties, more in particular, of um, first children towards parents and then parents towards children? This is pretty much straightforward. Children owe respect, filial piety. So that's just a fancy word. Filial means um, coming out of being a son or daughter. Um, so respect for our parents who brought us into the world. Gratitude, right? Recognizing that they've given us so much and um, I can't properly return it. Docility, that just simply means to be teachable. Now obviously that doesn't mean I always have to agree. Um, obedience to parents. Um, Obviously, up to a certain age, um, in paying them respect and fostering good relations with brothers and sisters, children contribute to the growth and harmony and holiness in family life. Right? So children have a huge role to play in, um, in a family. And um, it can, so I, I was talking to a couple who had gone through, um, the husband had gone through RCA, RCA about five years ago. And he was a Muslim, and he became Catholic because, so his wife, he was married to a Catholic. They would go to church, he would stay home. And um, it really bothered his daughter that <laughs> he would just stay home on Sunday morning. And um, she begged him countless times to come. And one day, he um, didn't say anything. He just, just before they pulled out, he got into the car. No, no dialogue. Sat in the car during the whole of Mass. But, and then, a few weeks later, he actually came into the church and so forth, and then he went to RCA. And, and, and if his daughter hadn't, uh, so anyway, beautiful story of, I mean, obviously it's upside down, right? But children have a lot more uh, power over their parents for good than they think. <laughs> and then adult children. So adult children should give their parents material moral support whenever they find themselves in a situation of distress, sickness, loneliness, or old age. Now we tend to, so, in most of humanity, it always had to be the, 
the children who did this, right? Because there wasn't Social Security and Medicare and all the rest. And so we today have the luxury, very often, of being aided in that mission. But that brings a special danger. And that danger is we can think, this is the government's responsibility and not my responsibility. And even if the government is helping them because they paid into Social Security and they're getting back, whatever, and that's a great thing. But it's got to be my particular responsibility right, to make sure that I'm not. Uh, so often, you know, uh, nursing homes are the loneliest places on earth. Uh, anyway, so that's something for um, children with elder parents or grandparents to, uh, to examine. Okay, questions on that? Duties of parents to their children. So it's, even though the commandment doesn't, so when we look through the Ten Commandments, I should have mentioned this, um, the commandment directly says something, but then there are a bunch of what we could call corollaries, like in geometry. In other words, other things that follow, even though they're not directly said. And so that would be the duties of parents towards children. Yeah, so they have the first responsibility for their education in the whole sense of the word. So education, not just of the mind, but above all, of virtue, of, um, of the whole of being a human being. Um, and the first heralds of the faith for them. Right? And so again, often, if the parish has a good you know, um, faith uh, formation program for children, parents can think, well, I'm doing my job by delegating this. But it's always going to be much more important what children get from their parents than what they get from um, the pastor. I'm just stop. Yeah. So they're the first heralds of the faith, the duty to love and respect their children as persons, children of God, right? and to provide, to love them insofar as possible as God loves them. Because that's how the normal way for anyone to discover that God loves me is that my parents first love me. Right? In other words, that's God's plan. He wants to. Um, if, and if that doesn't happen, right, if, if a parent doesn't if, um, give that emotional connection to children, children remain stunted for their whole lives um, as adults looking for, and their image of God will be gravely affected by this. Right? And you talk to people, so I've, um, um, I've seen people who didn't get that when they were growing up who have been angry at God right, for their whole lives, maybe not able to put it in, in words like that. Um, right, and then providing, obviously, their physical, spiritual needs, um, select a school, um, and the mission of educating their children in the Christian faith. There can be all different solutions. So again, in this as in so many other things, it used to be in the 19th century that there was a grave responsibility for Catholic parents to send their kids to a Catholic school. Right? And that's how we got this huge network of Catholic schools in the US and, and as a result of that. And that and that's a prudential question for parents. Right? And parents have to determine that given their, what's out there, public school, Catholic school, homeschooling, whatever it may be. All right, how do they educate their children in the Christian faith? And the first thing, obviously, in everything is example. Right? So the example of the faith, faith is contagious. Right? And so that means that the faith of parents is contagious for the children, and nothing else can supply if that's lacking. Yeah. Prayer and family prayer. So a beautiful thing for families is to do um, um, a family rosary. Right? So it, there are lots of different ways of 
praying. The nice thing about a rosary is that it combines um, vocal prayer with mental prayer, and the children can fully participate in the vocal prayer part, even if they're, and then they'll surprise us with the mental prayer part also. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a way that everyone, that there be both interior and exterior, and that involve the whole family. Um, family catechesis, participation in the life of the church. All right. Our question on that, are family bonds an absolute good? And the answer is no. Jesus said that in one of his more controversial teachings. Um, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Right. That, by the way, is a divine claim. If Jesus wasn't God, that would make no sense. Right? Because that would go against the fourth commandment, to love some whoever, some you know, sect leader more than my parents. God has put my parents over me. Um, but it's true about God, right? We have to love God more because we're to love our parents in the fourth commandment because they represent God and are doing God's work in bringing us into the world. Right? And so that means that sometimes I have to leave family relations to put first um, one's relation with God. Um, and sometimes that happens. So I teach at the seminary, and part of being a, a seminarian is, um, well, part of becoming a priest is to make a commitment of celibacy, right? And that means no grandchildren for um, the parents. And um, there can be a lot of pressure sometimes on children to not embrace, say, the priesthood or a religious vocation. Um, and one has to follow God first, right? Nobody has to become a priest or religious. but um, if God's calling, then I should put that first. Questions on that? And I certainly shouldn't, I mean, so my mother-in-law, um, we've been Catholic 33 years, my mother-in-law still tries to get us um, to leave the Catholic Church and to um, um, go back to the practice of Judaism, and I don't suppose she'll stop trying to do that. Um, and um, so I don't have to break my relationship with her because she understands I'm not going to do that. But um, if there were such pressure put, right, then one might have to, um, right, to do what one needs to do to put God first, right? And it goes back to the same, you always have to obey God, right? Obedience is a really good thing, right? We said that part of the fourth commandment is obeying one's parents. But if they are commanding something contrary to what God is commanding, which one do I have to follow? Obviously, God. Right? In other words, there's an order of authority, and you always have to obey the highest authority, which is God. Larry? Mm -hmm. There was a question that came in regarding a comment you made in the last class uh -huh. that you were going to talk more about why the Sabbath is celebrated on Sunday. Ah, okay, yeah. Elaborate on that. Okay, yeah. Thank so, um, Jesus, so what's written, the Ten Commandments correspond to what's written on the heart. What's written on the heart um, is that time be set apart for God. What day and how much time, that's a question that can change because that's not written on the heart, that it be Saturday or that it be Sunday. Right? In other words, that's not part of natural law. But that can be part of divine law for a given reason. And in the, Jew, in the Old Covenant, one day was taken out, the Sabbath, the last day of the week, because that was um, connected with creation. And the idea was, after the six days in which God worked, right on the seventh, he contemplated what he had made. 
and rested. Right? And so that's the reason for the Jewish Sabbath, as a kind of contemplating in gratitude for the goodness of our creation. Jesus, however, has, so Jesus is the God, right? He's the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us. So he worked the work of creation as his Father and the Holy Spirit. But he, in the midst of fullness of time, did the work of recreation or salvation, dying for us on Calvary on Friday and rising on the first day of the week. And so it's fitting that after that greater work. So which is greater, bringing us into the world or um, redeeming us and making us worthy of heaven? And well, which cost God more? And to make us, he said, let there be light. Be, and we were, right? But to redeem us, he was crucified. Right? And so that's the harder and greater work. And so it makes sense after that has been accomplished that we would honor the Lord's Day in a new way. And that's the reason for the, the change of Saturday to Sunday. Jesus could have risen on Saturday, right? But he didn't. He rested. He followed the Sabbath, rested in the tomb. I don't know. Yeah. He, yes, he rested, um, but chose to rise on the first day to be a symbol of a new creation. And so that's the reason for, and we see this, so this is what I should have said, we, I spoke briefly about this last time, and we see this in scripture if somebody wants to find it. So in, um, in the book of Acts, we can see that the early Christians celebrated in a special way on what's called the first day of the week. We think Monday, right, if I read the first day of the week. But that's not what scripture means. The first day of the week in Jewish terms is Sunday. So the first day of the week is Jewish for Sunday. And we see it happening again and again. So Jesus rose on Sunday. He met with the, upper, with the disciples in the upper room that very same Sunday. He revealed himself to the two on the way to Emmaus that same Sunday. And then he doesn't appear for another week. And it's again Sunday, the first day of the week, um, a week later, when the doubting Thomas is there and puts his finger. So we see the second Sunday, he's come to them. And then Pentecost is Sunday, right? Pentecost Sunday, when they're all gathered in the upper room. And then numerous other times in the book of Acts, it singles out the first day of the week. Paul went to, um, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he met with the elders, and he was preaching them. And Acts tells us it's the first day of the week. And Paul preached so long that somebody was sitting, they were up in the upper story, somebody was sitting on the window and fell asleep in Paul's homily and fell down to the ground, a couple stories. And uh, Paul went out, laid his hand on him and, and raised him from the dead. Uh, but anyway, the point being that we see the early Christians worshiping on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Right? So it happened from the beginning. Very often, um, certain... Mm, some Protestant denominations, um, Seventh-day Adventists, etc., want to keep the Jewish Sabbath. That doesn't make sense. That would be not recognizing that Jesus made a change. Right? We don't do the same um, sacraments of the Old Covenant. And I'll spend that in two, in two weeks. We'll, we'll start looking at the sacraments. And we'll see that Jesus instituted new sacraments, a new economy of salvation, a new way of receiving grace. And the transfer of Sabbath to Sunday is part of that, right? It's both, we should think it's not um, Christianity and Judaism as if they're in opposition. It's continuity, but change at the same time. Great. Okay, fifth commandment. So here we get to something more controversial. Thou shalt not kill. 
So here too, as in all the other commandments, there's something directly commanded and then lots and lots and lots of corollaries, right? things that follow from that. So what's directly commanded is, thou sh this is the way we should interpret what's directly commanded. Thou shall not kill, um, not chickens or pigs or whatever, but human beings, right? So thou shall not kill, that's in, we have to understand that. We're and innocent human beings. So it's not even directly about the death penalty. We'll talk about the death penalty in a few minutes. But directly, it's, it's against killing innocent human beings. Right? And that's an absolute prohibition. There's no, just as we said a few weeks ago, and one of the first moral principles is you can't do evil to get something good. What you're doing directly has to be good itself. In other words, there always has to be a good moral object. All right, murder. Is that, can that ever be a good moral object? No. Right? So it's one of those things that is always wrong and can't be done to get some other good thing. Right? Even if it's to save 10,000 lives, I can't murder somebody for that. We'll make a few distinctions in a few minutes. But the key thing is, what am I directly doing? Right? If my intent is to murder an innocent, it's not something that can ever be rightly ordered to God. Can I ask that question? Yeah. Um, assassination attempt on Hitler. Is that wrong? It, um, so it, would he be seen to be innocent? Certainly not. Yeah. And so that's a difficult question. We'll, we'll look at that. But that would have to do with can there ever be cases in which... So yes, obviously, if you're at war, you can um, uh, take out those who... It's, It'll be part of self-defense, right? So self-defense is not the same as murder. Self-defense is a good thing, right? And it's a good thing because of this commandment, right? Thou shalt not kill. What the commandment is preserving is the goodness of innocent human life. So in a sense, like who's innocent, right? Right. None of us are completely innocent. But, um, the, the, okay, that's not what's meant here. Um, not that one has to have been completely innocent one's whole life so that this commandment applies. Um, that, would, that would exempt, right? That would just take away the commandment. Um, it's that um, an unjust aggressor can be stopped and must be stopped if we can, right? And that is for the sake of the common. So somebody, um, let's just take self-defense. Suppose um, someone... Um, is seeking to, to kill me unjustly and those who depend on me, say my children. Um, if it's just me, I could not resist. But if others are depending on me, I can't not resist for them. I would have a duty to resist the unjust aggressor. And that would be in service precisely of this commandment. All right, we'll come back to that. But that wouldn't be murder. So this goes back to something we did about a month ago. And it was, we looked at how do we determine the morality of a given action? And the first thing we look at is, what's the object? In other words, what name do I put on it? And then second, what am I doing it for? And then third, what are the circumstances? The first question is, what name do I, what's my object? And what we're saying here is, if murder is the name I'm putting on it, can't ever do it. And I don't need to look at some good intention or the circumstances. But self-defense, that's a totally different object. Everybody see that? That's not the same moral object. 
Great. So the, really, the key thing is, what am I really doing here and now? How would the common sense of mankind describe it? And I, the, I really mean common sense, because this has got, everybody's got to make these judgments in conscience. And yes, the catechism helps us to form our conscience, but it's something that ultimately everyone's common sense knows, but we don't always want to listen to. Okay, why must human life be respected? And the simple reason is because it's sacred having been made in God's image and likeness. And this is why the fifth commandment applies to human beings and not to chickens or cows. I mean, yes, certain religions see them as sacred, but they can't be seen to be sacred in the same way because they're not made in his image and likeness because they lack reason and free will. Right? And that means the ability to... Um, to respond to God in a way that only the human being and angels can, by returning love with a free gift of love back. All right? And so everyone, every human being is sacred, even if I'm not doing that. All right, somebody might ask, well, let's go back to the Hitler example. Um, is his life sacred? It still is sacred as long as he's alive. And that's because he's still able of converting and returning it back. So we don't lose this sacredness by our sins directly. Right? And this is why I can't just, if I'm a private citizen, and let's say Hitler's not threatening anybody, he's not at this moment being an unjust aggressor, I can't just go and kill him. All right? It's different if he's an unjust aggressor in the act, right, in the, of taking out other people's lives and endangering them. Right? So human life must be respected, but it's sacred. From it, and when does this start? From the beginning. From the beginning, and that means from conception. Um, it involves the creative act of God and remains forever in a special relation with the creator, who is its sole end. And this is another difference between every human being and a dolphin, cow, or, or any irrational animal, is that every human being has a rational or spiritual soul that lives forever. And cows and giraffes don't. They have souls, but not a spiritual soul. And the reason why we say they have a soul is because they're alive, and there's a principle of life, and that would be the giraffe soul. But at death, that giraffe soul doesn't continue. It ends with the life of the giraffe. Human souls, though, um, continue. And so human souls have both a different beginning and a different end than animal souls. Animal souls are basically created by the animal parents. So mom and dad, rabbit or giraffe or whatever, are the actual authors of the baby rabbit's soul. Because it's something that it's not spiritual. But human beings with a spiritual soul, our soul can't be created by mom and dad. Mom and dad give us our DNA, our, which determines our body, but not our soul. And that's created by God at the moment of conception for every human being. So God, in, it, so in, take the, the marital act, the conjugal act. When um, parents come together um, and um, a new human being is formed by the, the union of egg and sperm, right? And so you get a new individual with new DNA. Right, that's what the parents are doing. At that moment, when you get a new um, human individual, 
God um, creates the soul out of nothing and infuses it into the body at that moment. We cannot observe it, right? So science can't see when that happens by testing um, because the spiritual soul is not observable. Um, what should we think about the moment that takes place? The church doesn't actually define the moment that it takes place, but it's reasonable to think that it happens at conception, and I think it's totally unreasonable to think that it happens um, later. Why? Because there's a continual unfolding without any particular discontinuity from the beginning until our death. Right? That, um, so the zygote, let's say, or the, you know, the one-day-old, two-day-old, ten-day-old fetus um, is continually unfolding with the same plan, with the same DNA, with the same um, humanity that is more and more unfolding day by day before birth and after birth. Um, and so certainly birth is not any moment in which the soul is in front of right? That's absurd, right? It's got to be there beforehand um, because it's human development that's happening, not pig development or giraffe development, right? It's a human being that is continuously developing and unfolding. And so there's no more reasonable time that we can assign to this than conception. Does that make sense to everyone? And therefore, we have to treat the fetus as a human person from conception, even though science can't prove it empirically. Does that make sense? What science, no, science has totally changed this. It's not as if science is in opposition to faith in this matter. It's totally the other way around. What science has shown in the last 100 years is precisely DNA and that project of unfolding that takes place. And so we know much more clearly today that that's human, a human individual, and not any other animal species, and that it's an individual distinct from the parents. Right? So science has simply made much clearer um, the, we could say, the sacredness of human life from the beginning. Question on that? It is true, somebody might object, it is true that um, in the Middle Ages, people like Thomas Aquinas, the greatest theologian and philosopher of Catholic tradition, um, thought that ensoulment took place later, about 40 days. And this really is crazy. 40 days for boys and I think 80 days for girls. Why? I have no idea. But um, that today makes no sense. Thomas Aquinas could think that based on Aristotle because they didn't have microscopes. They couldn't see the actual embryonic development. And so the idea was once you're able to see organs developing about 40 days, um, that's when you assign. And, and the idea would be you can't just take a human soul and stick it into a piece of concrete or into some um, blob of matter. But the fetus, the zygote, is not a blob of matter. Right? It's incredibly organized with its own DNA. And this is what earlier centuries didn't know about. Right? And so this is why science has actually much strengthened the Catholic position on the sacredness of life in the womb. And then another consideration is Jesus went through all of that process. Right? Jesus was in Mary's womb for nine months. And obviously, he was a human being during all that time, and God, right, showing us the sacredness of life in the womb.
questions on that? So this is why abortion is such a grave violation of the fifth commandment. Right? It's understandable why a society would be less attentive to it. And that's because we can't see it. Right? We can't, um, well, today we can see it much more than in the past right? with sonograms and all kinds of other things. But it makes sense that um, uh, insofar as it's hard to visually recognize right, the organ development in very early stages of, of development, it's hard for us to see and imagine a personal presence there. But using our intelligence, when it's got to be there, right? And so there's a, a sacredness there. Now, this qu questions on that? This is your chance. Right, so it's not lawful for anyone to destroy an innocent human being. Even for, now, somebody might think, well, look, the mother has to go through huge um, trials. And yes, that can be um, very grave. Um, I have a, a very good friend who has, um, oh, I forget the name, um, and she's um, nauseous the entire pregnancy and has to have a, be on a feeding tube. Can't, um, and so there, I mean, there can be incredible trials in pregnancy. But ultimately, the mother isn't the author of that life. But God is, and it's, that's what it comes down to. Now, um, so what I can't ever do is kill directly, murder someone, even to save, say, the mother's life. That doesn't mean, though, that one can't do something um, like what we said about self-defense. Um, let me just take a hypothetical case. Let's suppose um, today, I don't know how much this happens, but um, if someone... Um, has, let's say, cancer of the uterus. Um, it could be um, permissible to directly take out um, an illness, right? That's a good thing, even though one knows that it will um, have a consequence, a secondary consequence of the loss of that life. Um, this is what's called double effect, and um, it can be, um, seem complicated. But the, it goes back to our principle. The what I'm doing always has to be good. So I can't make the what I'm doing killing this baby. But I could, I don't have to, but I could in certain circumstances make the what I'm doing um, taking out um, an illness. The, the best, better example of this would be, um, uh, my memory, um, if the, the pregnancy forms in the... Um, Ectopic pregnancy, yeah. So an ectopic pregnancy, the baby's not in the right place. There's no way that this can have a positive outcome. Um, and yes, it's possible to um, have the, um, that removed, that part um, where the baby, um, the fallopian tube, thank you, removed, um, because the what you're doing is a good thing there, taking out a disease even though it tragically has a second effect that you don't want in and of itself, right? Obviously, the mother wants that pregnancy to um, come to term and be successful. But um, one can sometimes um, um, choose something that's good, even though it has a second effect that one doesn't want but isn't able to avoid. And so that's called double effect. Um, and so, yes, that would be permissible, and that's a prudential decision of the mother in a case like that.
right? And they're obviously with their doctor. But that's different than a direct abortion because a direct abortion is directly, um, in and of itself, taking the life of an innocent human being. Okay, what about a le legitimate defense of persons and society? And in choosing to legitimately defend oneself, one is respecting the right to life, right? That's what we were saying before. So in legitimate self-defense, um, even if it ends in the death of the, the aggressor, um, I'm still seeking to preserve life. That's my goal, right? In this case, my own life or the life of those who depend on me. And I'm not choosing to kill. I would much rather, right, if somebody were to break into my house and, and um, be about to kill me and my family, um, and I had no other way of um, defending myself and my family than, say, um, stopping them mortally, I should see that as a tragedy, right? And again, that would be a double effect because what I'm directly doing is stopping them even though I foresee that it also has the effect of killing them. But if I could stop them effectively without killing them, obviously I should do that, right? And that's the question of proportionality, right? So if somebody is threatening me, not to save my life, but because they want $20 or something, um, I shouldn't kill them to save my $20, right? Obviously, right? That would be utterly disproportionate. I shouldn't use a nuclear bomb against someone who's um, could be stopped in a much more proportional way, right? And the same thing goes for just war, as we'll see. So you said um, uh, it would be permissible for him to um, assess the killer, right? Because he's an aggressor. He's making an active, you know, killing all these people who respond to the killer. Mm -hmm. There have been activists, and I'm not advocating mm -hmm. for this, who will attempt to kill um, abortion doctors. What's the difference there? Because they're obviously aggressors. They're right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Certainly. Right. So that certainly would not. Yes. Right. That would be totally dis. That would end up being murder. But why? Why is that different? And that's because I'm just. Uh, let's say I'm this pro-life activist, and I decide to kill this abortion provider. And I'm just a private citizen. They're a private citizen. The government is the one who has the job to keep murder from happening in society. And that won't happen in a democracy unless people's minds are persuaded and we put in legitimate, in other words, I have to observe the proper political process in a case like that. And the proper political process is to, um, if I'm a pro-life activist, to seek to get um, pro-life laws and, and so forth into place, but not to take the law in my own hands like that, so which would always be wrong. So if no other countries or governments oppose Hitler, it would be wrong for a private citizen not in that particular case, though. And that is because um, that's a special, uh, I'm, maybe I'm going to postpone this for a minute. We need to go look at just war theory. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Are there just wars? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible to have a just war. And there are, most wars are not just. But yes. And we'll look at them in just a second. Maybe we should do it right now. Let's hope the next slide is that. Um, I'm, all right, I'll come back to this. Okay. So first, let's say um, peace. So the fifth commandment requires us to seek peace. 
as, and that would be especially um, public officials have as their gravest, um, we could say, charge and trust to preserve peace and within one's borders and without, all right? I think that's pretty obvious. Um, that's not so easy though, right? In other words, preserving peace, peace isn't simply the absence of war, but it's, peace comes from right order, not simply from right the brute force, because that won't last, right? Um, and so peace is gonna come from, um, let's say peace in a given society, is gonna come from respecting the rights of human beings, right? Safeguarding their goods, and free communication, right? All, uh, respect for human dignity, and practice of justice and fraternity. All right. So obviously that's the, the goal of everyone, to seek peace. What, when can it be permissible to use military force? The Catechism gives four conditions for when a, law, a war can be just. Right? And so the first and foremost is that there has to be a suffering inflicted by somebody else. In other words, I, it's not going to be a just war if, um, let's say, the United States, um, we're just going to invade Canada. Right? That's not going to be a just war because we're the aggressor. So I, I don't want to get into too political, um, but I think a pretty clear case that you've been reading about in the news, hearing about, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It seems pretty clear that that's one sovereign country invading a, the, another sovereign country and currently occupying about 20% of its land. I, that can't be a just war on Russia's part as the aggressor. Does that make sense to everyone? The question is, can it be a just war on the part of the country that um, was, that aggression was inflicted on Ukraine. In other words, can Ukraine be morally justified in responding militarily to that invasion? Right? And I think common sense of mankind would say, yes, in the same way that we said that if somebody breaks into my house and wants to kill me and my family, I have the right to stop them. And the duty with regard to uh, my family, right, to stop them. And therefore, a government has not only the right, but the most grave duty to seek to recover its sovereignty. And a government, let's say the government just did nothing, right? So Russia comes in, occupies 20 of land, and we'd say, fine. That, it would seem that would be a grave dereliction of duty to do that. I can cede my land, let's say, to President Putin, but I can't cede my country's land to President Putin, right? Because it doesn't belong to me. Um, and so in a case like this, or I mean, World War II, another classic example, right? Hitler invades all these countries. Do they have Great Britain? Does it have the right to fight back? Of course, right? Clearly Hitler is the unjust aggressor. That's not a just war. But Great Britain in fighting back, France in fighting back, and, and the US in joining the war, that would be um, a just war at least for the first condition, all right? So that's the first and most important, is that the suffering inflicted by the aggressor has to be lasting, grave, and certain. So I'm sorry, if I apply this to the Iraq war, it gets tricky. Um, so with President Bush, right? It seems that this first condition wasn't met. Iraq didn't attack the United States directly, and um, it didn't inflict harm that was lasting, grave, and certain. Yes. 9-11 was harm that was um, grave, 
But was it Iraq that was doing that? It, so these are the things one has to be looking at in making a decision like that. Second, all other peaceful means must have been shown to be ineffective. All right, so let's say before this happens, and Russia's got you know, 200,000 troops on Ukraine's border. Before it happens, you want to make sure that you exhaust all means of negotiation before the war starts. All right, that just simply makes sense. And that's because um, military response is going to be always involve the killing of innocent civilians and involve other evils that are awful. Right? War is hell. So all other peaceful means have to be shown to be ineffective. So that, too, is often lacking in what otherwise might be a just war. Third, this is interesting, there have to be well-founded prospects of success. And that's because I, it would be gravely, it would not serve my country if I were to, um, um, maybe an example of this was the Falklands Islands against um, Great Britain. I mean, that just wasn't, didn't seem that there were well-founded prospects for success, and that would fail on number three. Um, number four, the use of, the, of arms, especially given the power of modern weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, um, must not produce evils greater than the evil to be eliminated. All right, and so um, there's a proportionality there. So yes, one can use, let's take again Ukraine, Ukraine can defend itself with, with military weapons and so forth, but um, they should not make use of um, w weapons that would cause more, like say, a, you know, dropping a nuclear weapon on Moscow. That would be against just war principle. Right? Does that make sense? Um, one thing that's not directly here. Oh, and here, so this comes back to your question. In danger of war, who has the responsibility for the rigorous evaluation of these conditions? It belongs to the prudential judgment of government officials who also have the right to impose on citizens the obligation of national defense. So we can't, private in, individuals can't always evaluate it, right? And the president knows all kinds of intelligence that we don't know. We have to trust our leaders. But we can also vote them out of office afterwards. Uh, that, pray to God that that doesn't happen to us, right? But to, it all depends to the extent that one could have. So an interesting example of this is Pope Benedict, right, who recently passed away. Pope Benedict was drafted in the Second World War by Hitler's army and had to fight and did fight in Hitler's war. as a very young man. He was 16 or 17. And he deserted. And at the risk of his life towards the end and um, didn't get killed, almost got killed by the SS, but um, God's providence. And so, um, yeah, he did a laudable thing in deserting. But I don't think we could fault him for before that not having had the opportunity to do so, right? And we should think the same of these poor Russian soldiers in Ukraine, right? They should not be there. They should not be doing what they're doing. But, I mean, they are obviously not the principally culpable ones. They're victims. Going back to the question about Hitler, obviously what you want is some, the government itself forming some right attack against Hitler, as indeed was attempted and almost was successful. One thing that's not mentioned here is maybe, all right, let me see if it comes up. Um, in case of what does the moral war, war law require? 
even during war, moral law remains always valid. So that requires um, all the things that the UN, re so there are war crimes, right? So a war crime is when in a war, I don't respect, let's say, um, civilians, prisoners of war, wounded soldiers, etc. Right? And so any well-ordered world um, requires principles that are accepted as of common law, let's say through the UN, um, of ways to act and not to act in times of war that are punishable. Yeah, like Geneva, exactly, right? Right, and so in The Hague, there's a war um, tribunal, and there were war tribunals after World War II, the Nuremberg trials, et cetera. So, so that's in, um, so what you were saying, how the, the force that you would inflict wouldn't exceed that. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. The, the destruction that would come upon you if you were, if you stayed out of it. Okay, so in other words, to be proportionate, and, and part of that, what that means is, so I don't want to, let's take a um, very controversial thing. Um, use of um, nuclear weapons in World War II, right? So our two atom bombs on Japan. Was that against Catholic just war theory? And I think the answer is clear, yes. And the reason for that is because that was not directly aimed at military installations. It's true there were military installations in Nagasaki, but the goal wasn't simply to take out this military because one could have used lesser weapons. The goal was to make such a damage also of civilian lives to lead them to surrender. And that's a kind of thinking that is, we're going to do this evil thing so that we're going to save lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you can't make that kind of reasoning. I'm going to directly kill civilians. So in war, yes, civilians will get killed because if I seek to target a military site, I'm not going to be entirely successful. And that's not always wrong. In fact, that very often is, is very good. You have no choice. But to directly target civilians ever is always wrong. So if, say, in the Ukraine war, they directly target you know, a place, a hospital or something like that, or in Gaza, and that um, that's problematic, but again, the problem, the problem in a place like the war in Gaza is that they're using hospitals as shield for their military sites. Yeah. But simply to take out the hospital, no, that's something you can't ever do just in and of itself. Yeah, acts of mass destruction must be condemned and the extermination of peoples or ethnic minorities most grievous sins. One is morally bound to resist the orders that command such acts, right? So in a case like that, if um, I'm working, you know, I'm a German soldier, whatever, but I'm stationed in a gas chamber, you know, in, in a concentration camp, no, I must rather die than do that. Okay, questions on that? So obviously because of the evils that war brings with it, we must do everything we reasonably can to avoid it. And that means this also justifies why, yeah, we have a defense bill budget and why it's important to um, have a deterrence and a readiness precisely so as to avoid war. Right? And a position of complete pacifism, can't, it would be totally irresponsible in today's world. Questions on that? Catechism doesn't directly get into that. But complete pacifism. We're not going to... The problem is this. If, let's say we say, look, we're against war, 
but I'm not going to spend any money for the national defense, and so we're not going to have any ready um, response, that can be inviting the dictator, and thus, um, instead of avoiding war, I'm making war more likely. Um, so in the lead up in the 1930s, right, as Hitler's making his war machine, um, the best way to prevent war is for the other countries to, to be ready. Yeah, exactly, exactly. One personally can take a, in other words, I can um, take a position of um, not, especially if I think the war is unjust, right? To um, not, um, um, to not want to um, serve and to do some alternative, a conscientious objector. Um, okay, questions? Oh, I, let's go back to the death penalty. Okay, what is the, pre so, um, so this is a little complicated, the death penalty. Uh, um, so punishment itself is a good thing, right? So, we, I mean, it's a tragic thing. It would be much better, so in heaven, there's going to be no more punishment, right? Because there's going to be no wrongdoing. But in this real world, we need, civil authority needs to have the ability to punish. And it does three things. It redresses the disorder it defends public order, and it contributes to the correction of the guilty party. Right, so the first and most important is it, it reestablishes right order. So if somebody, let's say, kills an innocent person, and a grave disorder is introduced into society, there needs to be some way of, um, <clears throat> by inflicting punishment, some restoration is made. If not, because let's say I kill somebody and nothing is done and I just go free. What's wrong with that? It's as if society is saying, that's okay, that's fine. Who cares? And so inflicting punishment, first of all, shows the evil by way of the punishment. That's the first, so that's often called, um, um, I'm forgetting the word at the moment, um, but um, it, the first purpose, purpose, we could say, is showing, showing that the evil was done. The second, no less important, is protecting everybody else in society, right? So that person who committed murder, I want him locked up so that he doesn't murder anybody else. Third, I want to give him a chance to repent. And being punished can help somebody to repent, right? If I just let him go free and commit other crimes, he's not going to repent, but he's going to get more and more hardened in his crime the more he's allowed to do it. Right, so those three purposes. And the punishment should be proportionate to the gravity of the offense. All right, given that, um, could the death penalty ever be um, reasonable? And the fact is, for most of human history, it was thought to be reasonable because one, without a, um, a penal system that we have today, would have been difficult to make sure the second purpose of punishment was maintained, and that is to stop him from doing it again. Right? And so in most of human history, the death penalty was used, justified by that second principle there. But if a society has the ability to provide for those three purposes of punishment without killing the offender, that obviously would be better, and a better above all for that third reason. 
right? To give them an opportunity for re repentance um, and rehabilitation, right? Even if they're never able to go free. And to show the sacredness of life. So that's the Catholic position on, on the death penalty is given modern society's ability to have a penal system, um, a death penalty is not necessary in our society and therefore should be opposed. Questions on that? But that's a prudential question that involves recognizing that one does have the ability to accomplish those three purposes of punishment. And ultimately, that's up to civil authority to determine that. All right, so when non-lethal means are sufficient, um, states should limit themselves to such means. I had a friend who, um, a former student, who um, he was a lawyer, and um, he had a kind of midlife, he had a near-death experience. He um, was on death's door and hadn't received an apparition of, of Jesus. And uh, in this apparition, Jesus was crying and saying, Dale, what have you done with my gifts? And uh, Dale said, uh, which gifts, Lord? He's a lawyer. But um, no, and so he understood those things that made him a good father and lawyer and so forth. And so um, give me another chance. And he recovered completely. Um, and he decided to um, become a hospital a, um, a prison chaplain. And so he's now, or at least the last time I met with him, he was the um, chaplain in um, Florida's largest um, uh, prison, Tallahassee, and um, had a dozen um, godchildren on death row and, um, and in solitary confinement. And in fact, so there are, I mean, it really does, um, there are conversions that happen in prison, and there's a great good in, and he, before he did this, he was kind of, I guess, non-committed, wasn't against the death penalty, but doing this work made him greatly appreciate the Catholic teaching on, on the death penalty. And just even financially, it cost the state immensely more to execute someone because of all the legal um, appeals and so forth. Okay. Um, what is forbidden by the Fifth Commandment? Right, so obviously, direct intentional murder. Direct abortion, right? What do we mean by that? Willed as an end or means directly as well as cooperation in it. And so it's above all proximate cooperation, right? Proximate cooperation is doing something without which the abortion wouldn't be done, say the nurse assisting the doctor, right? So no one should ever do that. And that does get a penalty from canon law of excommunication, but you have to know that it gets that penalty, right? Most I mean, women who, who get an abortion don't know that and don't fall under it. Right? That would be more for the Catholic doctor. Right? So a Catholic abortion doctor ought to know that. Direct euthanasia. All right, what's that? So direct euthanasia is putting an end to the life of the handicapped, sick, or those near death by an act or by omission. So the omission would be omission, let's say, of ordinary food and drink. Um, and yeah, but here, so here, this is tr tricky. Um, no, we don't. Okay, so what makes it tricky is that it's not necessary to do, you know, incredibly burdensome and disproportionate remedies. Somebody's, you know, going to die anyway. Um, it's not necessary to um, do something. Um, um, let's say, tremendously expensive or burdensome, either for the patient or the family. They can just 
choose not to make use of extraordinary means. What you can't withhold are the ordinary means. And what is ordinary or extraordinary um, depends on the circumstances. And so that's where it's good to get advice of a Catholic ethicist in, in particular questions like that. Right? But the general principle is ordinary care, yes, shouldn't be taken away. But extraordinary care doesn't have to be given. And so that wouldn't be euthanasia. It's not euthanasia withholding some extraordinary and burdensome um, treatment, but withholding a treatment that's ordinary given our society, and, and uh, then that would be different. Yeah, overzealous treatment. Um, utilization, disproportionate medical procedures without reasonable hope of a positive outcome. Okay, what about, so let's look now at the right to, why must society protect every embryo? Um, and that's simply, there's an inalienable right to life, that's in every human being, from conception. And state ought to um, recognize that, ought to recognize that simply because everyone's rights depends on the fact that we recognize everyone's rights. In other words, restricting any one group um, sets a terrible precedent, right? If we say, all right, we're going to protect everyone's rights except the, the weakest or except right, those of this color skin or that. Um, it's ultimately, um, we can't put some, um, we can't distinguish um, some people as having a lesser right to life than others. And that includes the handicapped, right? Yeah, so it's another Hitler kind of thing, right, in, in Nazi Germany to simply euthanize to kill the handicapped. They have just as much right to life as anyone else. And unborn children, likewise. Right? And so one ends up not realizing it, undermining everyone else's rights by stripping the protection of, um, of the state from any one group, including, the, and maybe even especially, the weakest and those who can't fight back. Part of the fifth commandment, any, any questions on that? How do you implement that in society? That's a whole other question. And that, that's the, the question there is we need to, part of the Catholic's responsibility is to show why um, we ought to protect the rights of, right, of the unborn. And it's got to be a battle that we win in a courteous way, in a way that involves um, people coming to see it for themselves. It's a beautiful story about um, abortion doctor um, Bernard Nathanson who um, was very um, instrumental in changing, the, this is 1970, early 1970s, before Roe versus Wade. He um, got abortion, it was instrumental in getting legalized in New York, and he performed something like 65,000 abortions, he and his team. And um, he was the one who did Silent Scream, who, who filmed an abortion taking place, seeing it, um, came to a complete change of heart, and spent the rest of his life working against abortion. He ended up becoming Catholic. Um, and so that would be a huge example, not only of harm done, but of scandal. Right? In other words, if what I've done makes it easier for someone else to sin, we call that scandal. And so very often, one in the same sin can actually have these two effects, the harm done directly and the harm of scandal leading other people into sin. And that's something that Jesus speaks very strongly about. He says, better 
for someone to have you know, a millstone put around their neck and thrown into to the ocean than to lead one of these little ones into sin. Um, and so the, yeah, so in, in examining one's conscience, one should look for, did I scandalize others with what I did? And therefore, I have to not only make up for the evil, but also the scandal. And so it could, in the case of Bernard Nathanson, what can he do? He's responsible for 65,000 babies um, aborted. But by speaking about it and by, um, um, yeah, being totally vulnerable about that, he um, sought to avoid the scandal that he had caused or to undo it. Um, part of the fifth commandment is also to take care of my body. Um, so thou shalt not kill, and so I have a, a duty to take care of my health. Right? Doesn't mean I put health in the place of God, right? So that's in our society, sometimes we do that. And we make a God of our own health. But it's to have a reasonable concern for my health. And that means not to do things that would gravely be contrary to that health. I'm right? so taking, I don't know, certain kinds of, yeah, taking fentanyl or whatever, certain drugs would be clearly, or even um, a, a very serious drinking habit would be seriously against the fifth commandment. But at the same time, to avoid the cult of the body. Right? So to avoid the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, medicine. What is that cult of the body? Cult of the body would be to make it the, the center of my concern, yeah. Yeah, so a cult, that would be the opposite. So a reasonable care of my body, but without making it like my, an idol. How would I make my body an idol? And I think in our society, we, we can do that. Right? Either we make you know, health my principal concern, or it could be working out, or whatever it might be, sports. I mean, not, not that sports is not a great thing, but if I make it um, too... Where it's not supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, can there be experiments on human beings, groups? Yes, obviously, um, in service of the common good, but without keeping disproportionate risks. Um, transplant and donation of organs, this is a controversial. Um, um, so yes, it's, it's very good, um, let's say, for me to donate an organ if I don't need that to live, right? So donating a kidney, something like that. Um, so that's a good thing, but, um, and it's also a, um, but what you don't want to do is to kill somebody to get their organs, obviously. Um, okay. Care given to the dying. I think this is self-explanatory. Um, bodies of the deceased to be treated. So this is interesting. Um, I didn't get through what I was supposed to get through today, of course. Um, but um, So part of respect for the body, the fifth commandment, would be also burial. And that would be um, to treat those, the faithful departed, with a reverence. Can one cremate? Yes, one can. But it's never been, um, so the church um, much prefers um, the practice of burial simply as a way of showing greater reverence. For economic reasons, if people choose to cremate, yes, that the church um, formally prohibited that and now has um, accepted it, but not as um, recommended, right? So permitted provided it doesn't dis demonstrate a denial of faith in the resurrection of the body. All right, the body's going to rise anyway. It doesn't, not, it's not as if cremation is going to make it harder for God to raise up the body. But it's a way of showing reverence to the body. Okay. Um, so let me finish this. All right, so we'll do the seventh and eighth commandments and the sixth commandment next time.
Sorry about that. Um, so thou shalt not steal, and then thou shalt not commit adultery. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of your commandments, and give us the grace to put them in practice through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.